So we've established that God doesn't change. But does that mean that he doesn't experience emotions? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, December the 3rd of 2008, and I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and welcome to our next lesson in our series called Knowing God. And uh, as you guys probably realized, last week we didn't have a lesson because it was Thanksgiving, so uh, we're actually in the, the next lesson that we would have otherwise gone to. You didn't miss anything if you didn't get last week's lesson because there was no lesson last week. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you guys are having a fantastic week. Right now, it is absolutely freezing outside here in northwest Arkansas, and uh, it's been raining all day. We did have a couple days of snow. Uh, We had a a great Thanksgiving week last week, and we came back uh, in pretty clear weather, a little bit of rain, but then it snowed for two days, and I thought, man, I am so glad I didn't have to drive for, uh, what, about 11, 12 hours in a bunch of snow. So praise the Lord for that. That was really a blessing because I personally just don't really like driving in snow, although I'm able to. You know, uh, just a kind of a funny story here. When we were living in Dallas, uh, when I was going to Dallas Theological Seminary about 12, 13 years ago, uh, it, it snowed one day. And I mean, it was just a dusting. And there were people abandoning their cars on the sides of the freeway. And I thought, man, I, I will never do that. I would rather just crash uh, than abandon my car because of a, a little, little, little bit of snow. So anyway, just kind of a funny story. But anyway, uh, just a, a quick announcement for you guys. And that is, if you if you don't listen to our Monday lessons on Romans, right now I'm trying to raise funds for the church that I'm uh, that I'm going to be planting here in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, there is definitely a need here. I've got three cults within about a mile to mile and a half radius. For from my house. Uh, We've got Jehovah's Witnesses just around the corner, uh, Christian Science just around the corner, and there is uh, a a Oneness Pentecostal cult presence here as well. And uh, so anyway, we're trying to raise funds for this church that we're starting. And so what I'm asking you guys to do is to uh, donate $1 a week, if the Lord is leading you to support what I'm doing, uh, to donate $1 a week. Now that equates to less than one large coffee at Starbucks per month. So if the Lord is leading you to support us, you don't have to break the bank or uh, spend all your Christmas funds uh, you know, to support us. That's not what we're asking for. We don't want you to do that. All I'm asking for is one dollar a week, and uh, if if that were to happen, uh, you know, if if a significant percentage of you guys were supporting. Uh, our ministry here at Bible Study Podcasts and uh, the the ministry for Mosaic Church of Northwest Arkansas, uh, that would just be such a, a huge blessing. And uh, you know, I've brought my need to the Lord, and I've uh, I've prayed for His providence. And at this point, you know, I'm just waiting for for the Lord to answer. So anyway, if you would just prayerfully consider if the Lord is leading you to support this ministry, that would be such a blessing. And of course, the way you do that is you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org, and on the right-hand side, you'll see a support box where you can make a tax-deductible donation uh, through PayPal, right there on our website. But anyway, let's go ahead and get started today with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your word. 
Lord, we worship you because you are everlasting to everlasting. You are never changing and you are always faithful. And your love for us never changes. And uh, we are just so grateful for that. So Lord, today we just dedicate ourselves to learning more about you in order that we can glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, we live in an age in which we recognize compassion as the single greatest one of all the virtues. You know, advertisers and marketers have unquestionably taken advantage of this general consensus, and, you know, they've, they've gotten together and they've attempted to market various products based on emotional responses, which we should naturally feel. I mean, we're made to feel emotion. The person who doesn't feel enough compassion for, you know, maybe this cause or that cause, uh, that it brings them to the point of an emotional response is often viewed as either cold-hearted or self-centered, which our generation recognizes as two of the worst characteristics a person can possibly have. And to an extent, I agree with that. Uh, The general sentiment is that if one person is suffering, we all ought to suffer with them. And that if one person is rejoicing, we all ought to rejoice with them. And I'm certainly not denying that. You know, under many circumstances, this is indeed the appropriate response on, on our behalf. But let me ask you guys, do any of you guys have, have children? Uh, if you do, you know what I'm talking about when I say that this is one of the toughest times of the year for parents. Of course, as we're doing this lesson uh, live, you know, people might be listening to this in, in three years, but right now it's December 3rd, so this is the Christmas shopping season. This is one of the toughest times of the year for those of us who are parents. It seems like every year the the marketing geniuses or whatever you want to call them, uh, the, I call them the marketing geniuses that be, you know, they get together and they design the ultimate toy. You know, a toy that no child in the entire universe would want to have to live without, and which would make any kid who doesn't have that particular toy feel totally dejected and unloved by his parents, and shame on them if they don't get him, you know, the toy of the year. I mean, that's what marketing is all about, right? You know, in recent years, we've seen this happen time after time, and and year after year, and every year, it's right around Christmas time that the marketing push really begins. And the thing is, it's not like these toys are cheap either. I mean, the going price for some of these uh, must-have toys is usually at least 30 bucks. And if you have a few kids to buy for, man, that adds up fast. And one of the greatest mysteries in all of the universe is how kids are able to master the art of emotional manipulation before they're even three years old. Seriously. And the most amazing thing is that they don't always do it the same way. All kids are different in in their approach, or they have different approaches that they use. For my daughter, who's seven years old right now, she'll she'll do this thing. Uh, It's amazing. She does this thing where she'll ask for a toy, and I'll say, no, honey, you don't need that. And so this is what she does. She does this thing where she looks into my eyes, and she raises her voice, you know, like a whole octave, and she says, please... You know what I mean? And here's the heartbreaker. If I say no again, she breaks off the eye contact with me. And all of a sudden, I'm like 10 times more inclined to say yes. Where did she learn that from? I, I didn't teach her how to do that. Or my son. You know, he'll he'll ask for something. And, uh, and just like with my daughter, I'll say, well, you know, your mom and I will talk about it. And, you know, maybe we'll get it next time. Or just plain out, you know, flat out no. And so he does this thing where he kind of looks down underneath his glasses and he pinches his lips together, looking just totally dejected and unloved. And suddenly, just like with my daughter, I'm like overwhelmed by guilt. And I I just feel like a puppet. And I suddenly feel awful about saying no. How do they do that? 
I tell you, it's one of the great mysteries of the universe. But you know, we've seen in our study of God's attributes that God is both immutable and eternal. And based on these two attributes alone, we must also posit that God is impassable. No, I didn't say impossible. I said impassable with an A. When we say that God is impassable, what do we mean? It's not a word that we use in our everyday language. It's kind of an older word. Uh, But what we mean when we say that God is impassable is that God does not experience emotional change and that he does not suffer. In other words, God is not affected by things which are outside of or other than himself. And this is a very controversial statement. I realize that. But it doesn't mean that God has no emotions or feelings. It does not mean that. But before we address that and and some of the other objections to God's impassibility, let's examine first what Scripture offers in support of this attribute. First of all, let us note that the Bible offers ample evidence for the unchanging, immutable nature of God. And, you know, feel free to go back and review the scriptural evidence that we covered in support of God's immutability a few lessons ago. In Hebrews 13.8, we learn that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, in other words, there are no bad days for Jesus. Uh, he doesn't change from one day to the next. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we learn that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Now, as we discussed in our lesson on God's immutability, when the Bible tells us that God does undergo some change, it is using anthropomorphic speech to analogically communicate something about God. And so therefore, when scripture tells us that God's anger subsides, it means that the object of his anger has moved or has changed position in its relation to God. But it doesn't mean that God himself has moved. We've also seen in our study on God's attributes that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. If he needs something which is outside of himself, then he is necessarily not ultimate. But because he is ultimate, He needs nothing which is outside of himself. Uh, The prophet Isaiah wrote, Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? That's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14. And obviously the answer to all these questions is really obvious. It's nobody. And Isaiah continues, writing in verse 28, that, quote, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And in the midst of his affliction, we also found that, uh, that Job proclaimed of God, If you sin, how does that affect him? God, that is. If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? That's from Job chapter 35, verses 6 and 7. And again, the answer to each of these questions that we just asked here, or that Job just asked here, is obvious. Nothing. So the Bible offers a lot of support for the fact that God is impassable. Uh, Logically, God's impassibility flows from his total and complete perfection. Because he lacks nothing and possesses everything, he craves nothing for nothing. All we can freely give to him which he does not already have is worship or devotion. 
You know, we don't add anything to God himself when we do so. Instead, what we do is we magnify his attributes, but we don't multiply them. We magnify them, we don't multiply them. Uh, Also, God's impassibility follows from his pure actuality. Because there's no potential in God, he can't be changed in any way, shape, or form. And so, therefore, there is no potential for his emotions to be changed. Uh, Also, that God's emotions cannot be changed from one moment to the next is logically necessitated by the fact that God is outside of time. That is, you know, he's eternal. And because there's not a sequence of moments for God, he can't go from feeling one thing one moment to feeling something different in the next moment. Thomas Aquinas wrote that, quote, both the substance of God and his knowledge are entirely unchangeable. Therefore, his will must be entirely unchangeable. Uh, St. Anselm uh, echoed the same sentiment. He wrote, quote, we affirm that the divine nature is beyond doubt impassable, and that God cannot at all be brought down from his exaltation, nor toil in anything which he wishes to effect. But we say that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God and very man, one person in two natures, and two natures in one person. When we speak of God as enduring any humiliation or infirmity, we do not refer to the majesty of that nature, which cannot suffer, but to the feebleness of the human constitution, which he assumed." End quote. And so what we see when we look back through the church history, is that one after another, theologians affirmed that God is impassable. I mean, starting from the earliest church fathers, going through the Reformation, everybody has affirmed that God is impassable. The only time it's ever been questioned in all of history is the last hundred years. In the last hundred years, we've really seen it change. But uh, we're going to reach some of their some of their uh, objections here in just a minute. But, you know, at this point, we've seen that God's impassibility is indeed supported by Scripture. It is supported by uh, logic, philosophy, and it's also supported by theologians throughout history. And now we're ready to cover some of the objections to God's impassibility, which, uh, which are most common. There are a lot of objections. We're going to just answer, hopefully, what are the most common ones. First of all, the first objection would be that the Bible tells us that Jesus suffered on the cross, but it also tells us that Jesus was God. So if God cannot suffer, then how could the Bible teach us that Jesus suffered on the cross. And here we would just refer back to what Anselm wrote. He said that Jesus had two natures which were distinct from one another, basically. Uh, He had a, a human nature and a divine nature. So Jesus suffered in the human nature, but not in the divine nature. As my teacher, Dr. Norman Geisler, writes, he who suffered was the God man, yet he did not suffer as God, but as man. So that hopefully answers that first objection about Jesus suffering on the cross. And the second objection, which is probably even more common than that, is to say that God is uh, impassable seems to suggest that God doesn't feel emotions. He doesn't feel happiness. He doesn't feel sadness or grief or pain or anything like that. Yet the Bible teaches that the Spirit... Uh, grieves over the sin of a person. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And further, God cannot be pleased without faith, which seems to be an emotional response. Being pleased is an emotional response. And that's what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And uh, another you know, way of putting this, one article I read said that, quote, 
If, as the doctrine of divine immutability holds, God cannot change, then God cannot feel emotions. It may be argued against this that God might timelessly feel emotions, that he could be happy or sad from eternity to eternity. This, though, hardly captures the common understanding of a God with a rich emotional life, end quote. That was from an article that I found while I was uh, researching this subject. And in response, nothing could be further from the truth. We don't believe that God is unemotional. First of all, it must be noted that uh, that we're not saying that God is devoid of emotion when we say that God is impassable. Rather, what we mean is that God's emotions don't change. In other words, God will always feel happy when we do good things or when we act in faith, and he's always uh, sad or angry when we sin. He will always feel the same way about the same things. And honestly, would we want him to be otherwise? I mean, really, think about it. Would we want him to be otherwise? Would we really want him to be happy to, let's say, you know, the third degree about something today and then be happy to the eighth degree about that same thing tomorrow? Would we really want him to be angry at someone to the second degree for something that they did, but angry with us to the tenth degree? You know, of course we wouldn't. You know, as I was researching this, I came across a fantastic article called Does God Suffer by a guy named Thomas G. Wynandy, which you can probably find online. And he writes, quote, God is impassable in that he does not undergo successive and fluctuating emotional states, nor can the created order alter him in such a way so as to cause him to suffer any modification or loss, nor is God the possessor of negative and sinful passions as we are human beings with their susceptibility to fear, anxiety, dread, greed, lust, or unjust anger. End quote. So do we want a God who is vulnerable to these qualities, you know, fear, anxiety, dread, greed, lust, unjust angers? Indeed, we do not. Do you want a God who loves you less today than he did yesterday? Of course you don't. And the Bible affirms that he won't, thankfully. But how would you like it if God wasn't always pleased by the same thing? That would, in essence, leave you guessing about what makes God happy and what makes God angry. Well, thankfully, He can't be emotionally manipulated. So the things that made him happy 2,000 years ago will make him just as happy today, and his wrath against sin is just as angry as it was 2,000 years ago as it is today. Those who believe in a passable God believe in a God who is necessarily inconsistent and unpredictable. And what happens if God can change in his emotion? He becomes completely unpredictable. Friends, We serve and love a very predictable God whose love for us will never fluctuate. It'll never lessen. So we don't believe in a God that has no emotions. Instead, we believe that God's emotions are eternally unchanging. He always feels the same way about the same things. That doesn't mean that he doesn't experience a variety of emotions. It just means that his emotions toward things are unchanging. Another objection, which uh, Wynandy also discussed, is that this idea that God is impassable can actually be traced back to Greek philosophy. And we all know that the Greeks held to a plurality of false mythological gods, and therefore, uh, since we reject their ideas about, uh, about God or about deities, we must reject the notion that God is impassable. And in response, this is the genetic fallacy, 
What's the genetic fallacy? The genetic fallacy argues that the truth, or lack thereof, of a matter hinges on the source of the truth claim. Uh, the Greeks also developed logic, but it's impossible to reject logic without first accepting it. Is that confusing or what? It's basically, they came up with this thing called the law of non-contradiction, in which you can't affirm and deny the same thing in the same sense at the same time. So we don't reject an idea based solely on the source of the idea. Rather, the truthfulness of anything depends on the degree to which it corresponds to reality. And further, uh, you know, the idea that God is impassable can be derived from Scripture alone, apart from any Greek teachings. Now, in closing, we don't believe that God does not care about us intimately. To the contrary, because he is unchanging in his love for us, he cares about us more deeply than we can possibly fathom. Unlike how my kids can emotionally manipulate me, you know, shame on me. And I know that all kids do this because you see it happening every time you walk through the toy section of a department store. But, you know, unlike how we can all be emotionally manipulated, God cannot be manipulated by emotion. We can't get God to bless us more than he already plans to by raising the tone of our voice and saying, please, you know, we shouldn't think of God as being distant or uncaring about our suffering. Rather, we should resolve to love and worship him all the more because his desire for us to ultimately find the greatest happiness ever in him is unchanging. And he does care about our hardship. He is eternally caring. And that never changes when it comes to our hardships. The fact that God is impassable gives us all the more reason to love, praise, adore, and worship him because now we see that he loves us more than we can even imagine. And that love will never, ever lessen just because God is having an emotional moment. Well, I hope this explains everything to you guys. I'm sure that you guys have a lot of questions. And so if you do have any questions about this, please, please, please feel free to send them to me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And if we get enough questions, maybe we'll just have a second lesson on this because I realize that this is controversial. I realize that this is a little bit difficult to grasp uh, for a lot of people anyway. Uh, Neo-Orthodoxy completely rejects the impassibility of God, open theists or process theologians, whatever you want to call them. They completely reject this. So if you guys have any questions, email me your questions as soon as you can. And, uh, you know, if we have to, we'll do a follow-up lesson on this. But anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.